Welcome to the Bigfoot Terra in the Woods Sightings and Encounters Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining Kevin and I for what is to be our Christmas podcast. This is a wonderful time of year, in particular for the children in our lives, as well as being a time for we as adults to look deep within our souls, recognizing the changes that need to be made in our lives in order to be better human beings. It is a time filled with joy and wonderment, which is exactly what Kevin will be digging into in our Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities segment shortly. I am W.J. Sheehan, author of the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods series of books. And as of today, Volume 2 is now available in audiobook. So 2 through 6 are now at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon, as well as the entire series being in paperback, ebook, and in the lending library at Amazon.com. And in the spirit of Christmas, we have had not one, but two winners in our autographed book contest. What do you think of that, Kev? That's all right. Yep. Tis the season. Tis the season. <laughs> and our winners are Tom F. F like Frankenstein. And Annette H. And by the way, Annette says... That if she was to come into the possession of a Sasquatch, she would want it to be the runt of the litter. <laughs> and, and she would have a giant playground for her pygmy Sasquatch <laughs> to play on. <laughs> ah, a little runty Sasquatch. Isn't that nice? I, I don't know. I think a, even a pygmy Sasquatch would tear the living daylights out of a playground. Yeah, that's like a six-footer, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it's funny, though. Uh, you know, this is why I love doing this and why I love speaking to the people. You know, uh, obviously, she's saying this a little tongue-in-cheek, and I can really appreciate it, you know, but... It's just funny, you know, how people's imaginations and their senses of humor uh, work, as you and I both know. <laughs> yes, yes. A bit so, of a um, mystery. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom, uh, Tom F. and Annette H., I'm sure you're listening to this podcast. Uh, if you would contact me on the same uh, webpage, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, uh, the same way you left the email, and just leave me your names and addresses, and uh, I will get these autographed books out to you. So, uh, well done, well done. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, what do you got Congratulations. What do you got cooking? Uh, so we got some good stuff. We're going to start out, though, before we get into some good uh, cryptid stuff, we're going to uh, go through... And I'm going to read a new version of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Oh, really? Yes. I took some <laughs> liberties and uh, adapted it from Clement Clark Moore. So hopefully his family out there doesn't get mad at me for doing it. I was. This is the new and unabridged version, I assume. That is correct. All right. Well, uh, have at it, brother. All right. So here we go. Twas the Night Before Christmas. When all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The camera was loaded and set up with care, in hopes that a large Bigfoot soon would be there. <laughs> <laughs> the hikers were nestled, all snug in their tents, while visions of Sasquatch danced in their heads. <laughs> and Bill holding a Glock and Kevin his cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out in the camp there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the cot to see what was the matter. Away to the tent flap I flew like a flash, tore open the zippers and threw up the sash. 
The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects aglow. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a giant sleigh and eight freaky creatures (laughs) with a large hairy driver, so smelly yet stealth. I knew in a moment it must be St. Squatch. (laughs) More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Rougarou, now Squatch, now Yeti, and Dogman, on Bigfoot, on Chubacabra, on Mothman, and yowee! (laughs) To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. (laughs) As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the mountaintop, the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys and St. Squatch too. (laughs) And then in a twinkling, I heard up top the trampling and crunching of each huge pop. As I drew in my hand and was turning around, Into the cabin, St. Squatch came with a bound. He was covered all in hair from his head to his foot, and his odor was strong and would stun many a foot. (laughs) A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, all scary and red. His cheeks were like coal and his nose like the dead. His huge, ugly mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a stick he held tight in his teeth, and the stench, it encircled his head like a wreath. (laughs) He had broad shoulders and was nine feet tall. The cabin shook like jelly when he rolled into it like a bowling ball. (laughs) He was broad and lean, a right angry old beast. And I froze when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying his finger on the side of his nose, he gave a nod and out of the cabin he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like a high-powered cruise missile. (laughs) But I heard him exclaim, Erie drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. But of course, it didn't sound like that. It sounded like Chinese or maybe Russian gibberish. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, Merry yeah, that Christmas, puts a new, uh, new flip on uh, Christmas <laughs> and gift-giving, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well done, brother. Well done. Yes, Got to uh, have well, a little fun with one of my favorite poems. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I hope uh, <laughs> maybe one of our school teachers or our scout leaders will be playing that for their uh, kids. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you see a Sasquatch in your house on Christmas Eve, uh, give him uh, plenty of room to operate. Exactly. (laughs) Don't corner the beast. Yeah, don't corner him. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome, man. Oh, my brother. Now, uh, (laughs) moving on. What is it you're uh, bringing to the attention of the listening uh, public this Fine yes. Christmas podcast. So there is actually a method to my madness. We're uh-huh. going to go full circle in this episode. We started out with Clement C. Moore, and we may come back to him at the end, because we're going to talk about the origins of Santa Claus. Yes, yes. Yeah, so uh, there is a little disclaimer here, too, for all those listeners out there. In case you have some little ones with you, we're going to talk about the origins of Santa Claus. Um I'm actually a big believer in Santa Claus, like I know all of you are out there. So, but we are going to talk about some of the legends of Santa Claus and where the history came from and things like that. So just keep that in mind. Okay. All right. And some of this may not be suitable for young ears. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We don't want to be the spoilers. No, no. And we're going to try not to be a spoiler anyway. Okay. Yeah. 
So, uh, so you know, let's go. We go all the way back. So some believe, many in fact, that the origin of modern-day Santa Claus actually came out of the Mediterranean region of the world during the Roman Empire. So I don't know if you knew that, Bill. I have a feeling you did know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a, I'm a master of mayhem. <laughs> and the origin goes back to a Catholic saint called Nicholas, or Saint Nicholas these days. Yes. And, you know, if you've ever been over in Europe during December, this will not be news to you, as many Europeans celebrate Saint Nicholas Day on December 6th. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've actually run into that when I was over there. And, uh, you know, like everybody's out buying chocolate. I happened to be in the Netherlands last time around December 6th, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And everybody's in line in the mall buying these special chocolates and that. And it turned out it's all related to St. Nicholas Day on December 6th. And, and I don't know. I don't know if you remember, Bill. Did Did you... You know, because we have an age gap between us. But I remember for a while when I was a kid, we used to celebrate St. Nicholas Day. Wow. You know, I I have to tell you, I don't I don't really recall it. Uh, we but, used to get these gold coins, not real gold coins, but gold chocolate coins like under our pillow. Wow. I guess so. You know, it's yeah. it's been a while since anybody slipped anything under my pillow. <laughs> Usually it was me slipping my tooth under there for the tooth fairy. Exactly, exactly. But it was always, you know, so it was around the beginning of December. It turns out it was December 6th. I didn't remember the day. Um, but I remember that it was leading up until Christmas. We would we would get these chocolate coins. And then we would also, at least mom and dad would torment me, and they would tell me to put hay out uh, under my bed for the reindeer. Oh, yeah. So we would get some grass or some hay and put it underneath your bed. And then you'd wake up in the morning and the hay and grass would be gone. And uh, you would have these gold chocolate coins. Cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, over uh, over in Europe, uh, did you find or were we able to find out if these people celebrate that in the same way? I mean, I know they take to the streets. A lot of guys come out in St. Nicholas costumes, right? Yeah, we're going to go there in a minute. So, okay. So we're going to go back to who is this man called St. Nicholas, right? So he was Greek-born in the late 3rd century, so around 280 A.D., and he was a bishop in a small town of what is now modern Turkey. Hmm. And from what I read, Nicholas wasn't really jolly or chubby. Uh, like we think of Santa Claus today. And he had a reputation as a defiant, kind of fiery defender of church teachings and policies. Huh. Yeah, and this reputation was developed during the great persecution that occurred in 303 AD. And during this time, um, the the you know the crazy government, the persecutors, were burning Bibles and uh, threatening priests and forcing them to renounce Christianity or be put to death. Yeah, interesting, you know, really interesting. Yeah, one of these terrible times in history that, you know, unfortunately repeats itself, you know. And Nicholas, Nicholas was fiery and defiant, and he ended up spending many years in prison before Emperor Constantine ended Christian persecution in 313 A.D., Mm-hmm. So about 10 years later, Constantine came along and said, this is stupid. You know, let's stop doing this. And they let uh, Nicholas out of prison. Wow. And when he got out of prison, he went on to become associated with many miracles and acts of kindness and lived on uh, beyond his death, which occurred on December 6th, sometime around 350 A.D., so I saw different sources of the date, you know, between 340 and 350 A.D. Okay. Yeah. So basically, December 6th, St. Nicholas Day, is is uh, his death, the, the day of his death. Wow. So it was the memory of him that lived on after his demise. Exactly. Exactly. Right. He, didn't, he didn't live on. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, he's often associated with being the protector saint of many different groups, but typically orphans. Children and even prisoners, I guess, because he spent time in prison. 
mm-hmm. as an innocent man in prison. Yeah. And in one of the more famous tales of Nicholas, uh, three young women were saved from a life of slavery and prostitution when then Bishop Nicholas secretly delivered three bags of gold coins to their father, who happened to be extremely poor, and then her, their father could use this as a dowry to marry them off into better lives, avoiding slavery and prostitution. Wow. So I'm guessing that's probably where the tradition of the gold chocolate coins came from. Although when I was a, a young lad, you know, no one ever told me that they were saving me from slavery and prostitution. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, probably good that they did. (laughs) Yeah, if you were heading down that uh, that road, uh, as these two or three women were, uh, you would certainly uh, be more than a bit happy that somebody had come along and bought you out of that situation. Absolutely, and their father was very happy as well. So, one of one of the. Huge acts of kindness. One of many. I'm just going to talk about a few of them. And then this next one, this is a a very dark story, which I'm not going to go through the whole story because it's too dark for a Christmas episode. Um, But it's about three boys who happened to be killed at an inn. And Nicholas came along and discovered the crime scene and resurrected the boys. So, you know, this is viewed as one of the many miracles that, uh, you know, allowed him to become or enabled him to become the patron saint of children and of orphans. Right. You know, and in, uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church, every person before they are, are named uh, a saint or a doctor of the church, uh, evidence has to be brought forth that they uh, had performed uh, a miracle uh, in the lives of somebody or more than one person, if that be the case. Yep. So uh, although we're all saints, uh, these people are recognized as, as a slightly higher level, so to speak, uh, being more readily known for their accomplishments and uh, their contribution in the performance of miracles. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so we're going to talk now just for a couple of minutes about how some of these cultures around the world, especially over in Europe, um, remember St. Nicholas. So in Greece, uh, where he was born, uh, and then they say as well as in Serbia, Bulgaria, and Albania, St. Nicholas is celebrated on the eve of his feast day, so on December 5th. And this day is known as, I can't say it in Greek, but it's based, it translates into St. Nicholas of Winter. And in these cultures, this is a day of fasting. So no gift giving. And in fact, most people, you know, they fast and they definitely abstain from meat uh, and then have a feast just after midnight. Okay. So heading into December 6th. So what do they do? Go out and shoot a couple of reindeer and butcher them up? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if they have any of those down in the Greek Isles. <laughs> How about some reindeer kebabs? <laughs> and then in Belgium and the Netherlands, um, children leave their boots in front of the fireplace for St. Nicholas. And often they include a carrot or a treat for his horses. As legend has it that he arrived with his horses via sleigh in these areas. So that kind of echoes back, Bill, to, you know, what mom and dad at least had me do when I was a kid, where we would put treats under the bed uh, for uh, for the horses. I thought it was for reindeer, but who knows? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then uh, they would, you know, he would leave a gift. Awesome. I mean, and, you know, a, a lot of these things uh, evolve over time, you know. Absolutely. Different- no doubt about it. And you could see, like, the boots in front of the fireplace certainly translate into the stockings, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then in Germany and Austria, part of our heritage, um, the family uh, families honor him, uh, where children leave out a boot for St. Nicholas, and they actually receive small toys coins or candy. And in these areas, uh, St. Nicholas uh, is often viewed uh, as being dressed like an ancient bishop 
and is often portrayed on horseback as well, like mm. a bishop would be. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, pretty. And pretty. Neat. You see, you see a lot of those types of images in uh, old Christmas uh, paintings and in some antique ornaments. Absolutely, of, of the red and white uh, garment, which we're used to seeing on a Santa Claus, but um, a, a man carrying, you know, a staff. And having on his head the bishop's mitre, that long, tall, kind of uh, pointed hat. Yeah, and in the typical images of St. Nicholas, which I'll put some on our website, he's a tall, skinny man. You know, again, not like, not what you would associate with uh, Santa Claus. Right, right. You know, so. So how did we get from December 6th to Christmas Day? Right in this tradition, how did we morph from Saint Saint Nicholas into Santa Claus on Christmas Day? Hmm. So it turns out that you know again during another one of these changes in uh, the political landscape, landscape, this one was the Protestant Reformation that started up in the 1500s in Europe. Um, during this period, many saints fell out of favor with the Church. And therefore, celebrating these saints was frowned upon. So, you know, folks, though, were very happy with St. Nicholas and the celebration around St. Nicholas. And they loved the fact that St. Nicholas would be leaving gifts for their children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, it gave children a great thing to look forward to. But we had this Protestant Reformation and, you know, the politics of the day were saying um, can't celebrate saints. So... So folks started to look to, believe it or not, baby Jesus to be the one that would bring these gifts to the children. But of course, you know, an infant uh, couldn't carry many presents, <laughs> you know. So then, interestingly enough, some of the European cultures also wanted the creature to be a little scary so they could get their children to behave better in the days coming up to Christmas. Like a pig, like a pygmy Sasquatch? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, know, you couldn't really have baby Jesus threatening kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. God forgive us here tonight. <laughs> so, so get this. So, you know, now we enter, some of our relatives enter, Bill. You know, some of our relatives, the Germans in this case. <laughs> <laughs> Were they there too? <laughs> well, they introduced some scary sidekicks uh, to help baby Jesus oh my goodness. deliver presents. <laughs> I mean, right. you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. So yeah, yeah. One of them, you're going to love this part. One of them was called Rue Claus, which translates into Rough Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. You got to be kidding me, man. Rough am, Nicholas? I am not kidding. And then uh, the other sidekick was Ash Senkless, or Ashy Nicholas. And I was thinking maybe it's like Dirty Nick. <laughs> Bill, you got him up in New York, right? Yeah, hey, yeah, Dirty yeah, Nick. Yeah, yeah we, got, we got more than one Dirty Nick up here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, rough, rough Nicholas and Dirty Nick. Yeah, and then, you know, I think you've heard of this one, too. We didn't celebrate it, thank goodness. But um, the Germans also had this tradition of what they called Krampus. And uh, Krampus was this horrific Christmas devil, you know, just a mean, nasty creature. And on December 5th, also known as Krampus Night, uh, this hairy devil would appear on the streets. And, you know, basically, traditionally, young men would dress up as Krampus on December 5th and roam the streets, frightening children with rusty chains and bells. Yeah, you know, and you know something? I, I've seen something on this, and I, I just can't get uh, in my mind. I've seen little kids, I mean, in terror, with these guys acting out this Krampus character, trying to scare the jeepers out of them out in the street. And I mean, it works. They're going up to little children with these horrible masks on and stuff. Oh, yeah. And you see the and kids chains and bells. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Christmas, Christmas future, you know, from uh, Charles Dickens. You know, by the way, Kev, I'm a little uh, disappointed that in the night before Christmas... 
having been given a Glock, I wasn't able to use it. I know. Sorry about that. But I think I could break it out here on one of these Grampus characters. Unload <laughs> <laughs> a magazine or two. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. So, Take that, Grampus. You know, we got, we got these really scary traditions coming out of Germany and Austria you know, our kinfolk, our distant kinfolk. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, maybe this is the origin of our mom's kind and gentle soul. Oh, please. <laughs> Rest oh. her soul. <laughs> were, were there any Krampuses that were female? <laughs> <laughs> so, thank goodness, over in the Netherlands, a kind and gentle bunch, Aww. they refused to give up Nicholas as the kind gift giver. And they brought what they called Sinterklaas with them to the New World, over to North America. And the images that we have today and the translation from Sinterklaas to, you guessed it, Santa Claus, are largely attributed, you know, to the Dutch coming over and then some writers and poets that strove to make Santa Claus a broader family tradition back in the early 1800s. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and some of the more famous works of that time were Washington Irving. He wrote a book in 1809 called Knickerbocker's History of New York. And uh, he portrayed a pipe-smoking St. Nicholas soaring over the rooftops in a flying wagon, delivering presents to good girls and boys, and sticks to bad ones. Wow. Yeah, so kind of the early coal story, right? Yeah, but, you know, interesting, though, it sounds like, uh, for the most part, uh, what we know today became a reality over a period of time by artistic renditions of what well, this... Well, you know, and who knows, maybe... Washington Irving and Clement Moore actually saw Santa Claus, right? You know, and mm. they may be, they may have just been documenting it so that our young people know where he came from. The first witnesses. First witnesses, it could be. Oh, yeah, I, I, can, the, I can buy into that. Yeah, so that's Washington Irving in 1809, so a long time ago. And then in 1822, actually Clement Clark Moore wrote what was first called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Awesome. And he wrote this for his six children. And it's interesting, he had no intention of adding to the fledgling Santa Claus phenomena that came out of uh, the Dutch coming over to America and Washington Irving's book. But it was published anonymously the next year. And to this day, the plump, jolly Santa described therein rides a sleigh driven by eight familiar reindeer or eight familiar creatures, as I adapted it to. That is <laughs> awesome. No, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a really awesome historical thing, you know, to, to dig back uh, into the roots of something such as, you know, Santa Claus or St. Nicholas, you know. You know, it's uh, very cool. So, you know, and honestly, there is so much information out there ab around this. It's fascinating. And I, you know, of course, I love Christmas and I love the religious aspects of Christmas. You know, I don't want to take anything away from that. Yeah. But but I I loved reading about it. I loved researching it. But we could have done probably five one hour podcasts on the origins of uh of Santa Claus. So it's right, pretty, right. pretty interesting stuff. Really, really cool. And folks, you know, by no means are we uh, besmirching the birth of Christ celebrated on that day. Whatever day they think it really happened, we celebrate it on that day. Right. And uh, we're just investigating Santa Claus or what is it? Dirty Nick? Dirty Nick. <laughs> 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 so, you know, there's no getting away from Santa Claus. You know, I mean, it's in the hearts and minds of uh, a lot of people around the globe this time of year. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. So that's a really good job with that, Kev. And uh, I'm sure the, uh, the listeners uh, uh, dug it as much as I did. Now, in keeping with the spirit of Christmas, 
We're going to read a little account about a Bigfoot creature. Uh, This story was brought to my attention by Gary Adair, who at the time of this event was a trooper in the Northeast. He encountered something very interesting while pursuing something entirely different. He said that dispatch had sent out a call asking all available units to report to the scene of a domestic dispute. A woman was calling for help, saying that her husband was going to kill her with a sword. Now, any type of law enforcement officer will tell you that these are the worst types of calls to go on. Nationwide, many officers have been shot trying to defuse such situations. As soon as the call came over the radio, I was on my way with two other units. As I arrived at the location, which was a house trailer located deep into a wooded lot, car 605 was ahead of me. We got out of the cars and went to the door with guns drawn. We could hear that there was a heated dispute still going on inside of the trailer, including a lot of cursing and yelling coming from a man and a woman. My partner pounded on the door shouting, Police! While I watched, standing off to one end of the trailer home. Just after he knocked, the female voice shouted, Good! They're here! Now you're going to go to jail, you lowlife creep! Seconds after this, I heard a crash from the backside of the trailer, which was followed by the sighting of a man running out into a field while wearing nothing but a pair of shorts and sneakers, having forced his way out, jumping through the window. I shouted to my partner that we had a runner and started in pursuit of the man just as the third unit was arriving. Upon seeing me give chase to the man, the third officer started driving out into the field with his Bronco in pursuit of the same. It had been about 4 p.m. in the afternoon when this pursuit began, as I heard over the radio that the man was unarmed. I had stumbled and fell at virtually the same time the Bronco had reached a deep furrow that the truck could not cross. Now that officer and myself were both on foot chasing after this guy. The runner had already reached the woods and additional backup was underway as the two of us joined forces entering the forest together. We spaced ourselves out about 40 yards apart and started walking in. Now a running man going into a desolate forest wearing only a pair of shorts is not going to last very long. I must have been several hundred yards into the woods when I came across a creek, and I radioed to my partner about the find. There was a slight embankment comprised of some moist brown soil that appeared drier as you moved away from the water. After I told my partner about the creek, he moved forward, coming across it himself. This officer was now going to move easterly looking for tracks the man might have left while crossing the creek, and I was going to follow behind him. Both of us believed that he had gone more in my partner's direction. As I was closing the gap between where I had started and where my partner had begun, I came across some gigantic impressions by the creek's edge. The impressions were so fresh that they were still filling with water from the wet soil. One of them looked to be two or even three feet deep, and the prints had to have been close to two feet long and wide. Holy cow. Yeah. I radioed my partner immediately, telling him to backtrack to my position. We stood there examining the tracks, and we could see one more print on the other side of the creek as well, indicating that something had crossed the creek here. Now, just so you can visualize this, the creek was about a foot deep at its deepest, and maybe 12 feet wide in total, including several feet of bank on each side. (coughs) Excuse me. And... I lost my place, including several feet of bank on each side, and there was no way that these tracks were those of the man we were chasing. 
We both walked through the water and into the woods, following the tracks. Maybe 40 feet in, on the other side, we found a sneaker. And at this point, there was no reason for the two of us to go any further while alone. Retreating back to the field and the trailer, our reinforcements had already arrived, and I presented the sneaker to the wife, who confirmed it was, in fact, her husband's. With the assistance of another agency, our office began a manhunt. We staked out various roads and areas where the man would eventually have to emerge, knowing that he couldn't last long in the woods with no clothing and one sneaker. After several days, the man had not been seen or taken into custody, and the wife said she hadn't seen him on or near the property, and neither she nor any of the relatives had heard from him. During this time, the giant impressions by the creek had been the topic of much discussion, as well as the sneaker that we had found. Some felt that the prints had been enlarged by the softness of the creek's edge, even after I insisted they were not, since I had seen them within moments of them having been made. After the passage of about two years, this turned into a missing person case, the man still not being seen uh, in all of that time. About three years later, some hunters came across human skeletal remains about five miles north of where the chase had begun. They had been hunting in some thick timber and found the bones in a patch of tangled briars. After the report, the remains were retrieved by our forensics people. After much examination, we believed that the bones belonged to a missing man. DNA was retrieved from the remaining spouse's child, and it turned up as a match. The skeleton was that of the runaway man from some three years earlier. But here is the real clincher of the story and why I called you in the first place, Bill. According to the coroner, the man's skull had been caved in past the mid-sagittal line. In other words, the head had been smashed in more than halfway by blunt force trauma. Now, just to give you an idea of this type of force, if I was to take a full swing at your head with a large baseball bat, I couldn't even come close to this type of impact on your skull. Not even with two or three repeated forceful blows could I create such damage. Also, numerous ribs had been broken via compound fractures. They were all clean fractures where the bones had been broken into two separate pieces. All of this must have occurred while the man was in the forest, running and alone. And then I commented like this, Kev. It seems to me that something else had delivered the justice that was due to this violent man. You live by the sword, and you die by the mm. same. Wow, that's something else. I, I mean, honestly, I was wondering if his wife just got her hands on him. <laughs> <laughs> she she must have been one tough grampus. <laughs> <laughs> that's his unbelievable. Named Grampus. <laughs> I mean. You know, here again, we have an evidential tale. Nobody really knows. But the finding of the footprints on the chase, it almost seems to me like something nailed him entering the forest. Yeah, um, saw him come running in and heard the racket, maybe was watching as it heard the racket going on, you know, from the edge of the forest, right? Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, we can't ask any questions. You can only uh, relay what the guy has said, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they waited. Nobody came out, you know, and they figured, well, we'll catch up with this guy eventually. You know, he'll surface. Yeah, and then, very wild. Yeah, then these, uh, the bones are found stuffed in some bushes, and uh, it turns out that was the guy. But he was a train wreck when they found him. Yeah, that the the injuries that they talked about. Of course, I'm not a, a medical person, but you can just imagine the damage that was done. Well, it's incredible. I mean, think of what it would take to just break ribs in half. Oof. You know, I mean, ribs are soft, obviously, when they're in the body. They they have strength, but 
they're very pliable. It takes quite an impact to crack your rib. Absolutely. You know, to snap it in half. Snap it in half is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a fracture is one thing, but when you get a clean break, that's... Right, because like you said, they give on either end, so when they're hit... You know, if you hit really, really hard, you can crack them, but you don't usually break them in half. Right. That would have to be like the impact from like a, I don't even know, a 60 mile an hour head on car crash. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, just crazy, you know, how how these things come to be, you know, and when you talk about evidence, uh, is this all circumstantial? Well, you know, I guess some people would say that. Uh, it mm. wouldn't. It wouldn't necessarily be what I say, but <laughs> some people would say that. Yeah. Scary stuff for sure. Yeah, and think about the the mass or weight of something. Uh, he didn't comment on like how far his feet sunk in, but he observed that these things were like two or three feet into the soft. That's quite a. Uh, well, not uh, only is it deep, Bill. I don't think I could pull out of the mud if I was two or three feet into it, right? Oh, that, you know, you couldn't lift your leg out of it. Yeah, that's another good point. Yeah. If it was not if, strong enough. If it was the guy, they were hot on his tail. He would have still been stuck in there. Yeah, if you were up to your knee, I, I don't know how you would be able to lift your leg out of there. You know, that's an excellent point because they would have been all over that dude uh, lickety split uh, if he had been stuck there and was trying to get out. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That is a really rock-solid point. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, very interesting. And, uh, of course, what have we uh, brought into the barn as far as our listener mail goes today, Kevin? Yeah, we got some good stuff. And uh, also that account bill, law enforcement involved in the account. You know, yet another, yet another account with law enforcement involved. Yeah, a cop reporting what... Cops found. Exactly. exactly. So, you know, what do you say, you know? Yep. Uh, <clears throat> you know, All right. Like, well, we are going to some mail, and we're going to go to Allison in Minnesota, ah. a nice cold place for Christmas. Yeah. And Allison says, great show and keep them coming. I've been canoeing up here for many years, having heard the howls with my own ears on literally dozens of occasions. Hmm. Just like the clip you put on your website. It's no wolf and it's no bear. And it is all I can say. Oh, and that is all I can say. Wow. I agree, Allison. Wow. And she says, I wouldn't want to get close enough to identify it either. Love you guys, Allison. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, now that's a smart woman, you know. I don't <laughs> want to get close enough to hear it was enough. Now, when you listen to that howl recording, it really is terrifying. It's it's unlike anything you've ever heard before. Yeah, I mean, I listened to it uh, quite a bit. And if you were in the neighborhood of that thing, I, I, my God, your hair would be standing up. You are running for the hills. Yeah, you're not, you're not walking over there with a uh, Bigfoot stick. Uh, hoping to greet him on the other side of the hill. Hey, I wonder what that was. Let's go check. (laughs) That thing, in that recording, that thing sounded like a freaking locomotive. I mean, it's just like unlike anything you ever heard before, right? Yeah, monster. Like I said in the podcast, like I, I expected to hear something like a coyote, which is unlike anything I ever heard before I heard a coyote. Yeah. And I was like, no, nothing. Nothing yeah. like that. Yeah, no, when I heard it, Kev, I just thought monster. Hmm. You know, uh, otherworldly monster. You know, uh, just like a frightening, deep, growling roar, like a blast. Yeah. And it always reminds me of that woman and her husband that were fly fishing uh, when she said that uh, it sounded like a sound weapon. Yeah. You know, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I think that says it all like a weapon, like it could actually hurt you. Yep. So I I don't know anything on the planet, even the roar of a terrifying lion uh, that I would describe as a weapon. No, 
I agree with you 100%. Yeah, Yeah, I think she All right. Well, we're going to Oklahoma. And this is from Tex in Oklahoma. And he says, I really enjoy this podcast. It's a perfect mix. I won't ask him what it's a mix of. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell that you enjoy what you're doing, and it's much appreciated. I can't believe how many people have seen this critter, knowing that I myself have seen many things while on the hunt that your average person wouldn't believe either. Best wishes, Tex. Merry Hmm. Christmas, Tex. Yeah, Merry Christmas, Tex. Now, of course, I'm thinking the many things are something other than a Bigfoot. Yeah, I think it's other than a Bigfoot, but, you know, just stuff. You wouldn't believe if you weren't there, right? Yeah. And I said, you know, I've had some weird things happen to me while I was fishing. Yeah. Uh, just unusual events or things that happened that shocked you or like, how could this happen? You know, and nevertheless, they do. So I can appreciate what he's saying, whatever these strange things are that he's encountered, you know. Right. Exactly. Just like odd things. I mean, I remember once firing a shot at a bird when I was a kid. I don't shoot birds anymore. I fired a shot at a bird with a pellet rifle when I was a young man, and there were two birds, one sitting above the other on two different branches. I was aiming at the lower one, and both of them fell out of the tree. Hmm. And when I got over there, I hit the one square in the breast, and the pellet went up through it and hit the one above it square in the breast, and both of them got killed. Holy cow. I mean, talk about, you can't make that up, you know? Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't believe it if you weren't there. Yeah, I mean, it's just a bizarre thing, you know, and yet it it happened, you know? So I can only imagine what this guy has seen that he mentions, you know, strange things. Yep, yep. All right, we're going out to Utah, and it says, and this is from Kelly. It says, hey, good morning, gentlemen. This is Kelly from Utah. Loving the podcast. I'm almost all the way caught up. I've been binge listening. It's kind of fun to hear somebody binge listening on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're right up there with Netflix. (laughs) She says, I have some stories and I'd love to talk about them, especially the one in Provo, Utah. From, From last time I wrote two weeks ago, something else has come up with my father-in-law who just recently traveled through Montana and currently, oh, and she says, I'm sorry about the grammar and spelling. I'm on my phone and I'm currently outside at work and it's freezing. My apologies. (laughs) She says, please give me a call or an email. I'd love to talk to you guys about these encounters. So pretty cool. Yeah. Now Provo, of course, Bill, you know, this is almost, we're almost to our last episode of the year of our season one, and our first episode of season one was in Provo, Utah. So, oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, by the way, uh, if you're listening, I've already contacted her, Kev, and uh, cool. uh, I wanted to know that I've just been like super inundated, and I have her name and phone number written down next to me as we speak. So I'm going to be in touch with her. I want to hear every detail about what she has to say. Uh, it's just been pretty hectic. <laughs> Very cool. Pretty hectic and then, lately. And then this one come, This next one comes in from Robert P. in South Carolina. And I think he's one of the contest winners, right, Bill? He, he says, my pet Bigfoot would have been, <laughs> would have to be just under 81 inches to be able to walk under the doorways to prevent the need for constant repairs. <laughs> Robert's a practical guy. And he talks about, uh, he says, in reference to the Yeti and the Young Boys in Russia segment, I watched a related video where a celebrity special forces soldier interviewed the boys. Apparently, they were screaming expletives while fleeing during the video. Hmm. He told them he could understand being frightened, but they should clean up their language in the future. Wow. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Be a good Rushki. Be a good little Rushki, you little Krampus. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a Krampus in the making. Uh, uh, Kev, by the way, uh, who is it? It's uh, Robert? Robert, yeah. Robert, my brother just bought you an autographed Bigfoot book. 
Nice. Uh, and because Robert wasn't one of the winners, it was Tom F. and uh, Annette oh, right. H. Yeah. But Robert, because my brother offered it up, you could thank him this Christmas. If you write back into me or email us back, I'm going to send you an autographed uh, copy of Bigfoot Terror in the Woods as well. Well, look at that. Merry Christmas, Robert. I don't even have an autograph copy. <laughs> well, brother, you just gave yours away. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> all right, Bill. Well, that's that's all we have here in Listener Mail. I, I do want to give a little shout out uh, to Nat Geo. They had some great, great facts around the origins of Santa Claus, which... Uh, uh, I'm sure I uh, I uh, took some information from from their sources, and then I want to give another shout out to the family of Clement C. Moore, thanking them uh, for letting me take some liberties with his wonderful poem, one of my favorites of "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Absolutely awesome! And oh, what's this? Ooh, sleigh bells! Oh. I like sleigh bells, don't you, Kev? I do. From my brother Kevin and myself and our families, to all of you, our wonderful listeners and your families, we want to wish all of you a very blessed and merry Christmas, filled with joy and health in the new year. And if you should find yourselves this Christmas traveling over the river and through the woods, in a one-horse open sleigh. Please remember just one thing. Always carry more guns than you think you're going to need. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! <laughs>